Good morning. Um, I've been completely thrown off. Like, there's not ever been an envelope that just says Pastor Doug with my name on it, so I will hold that for later. Yeah, it could be. Well, if it's my pink slip, then here we go. One last sermon for you. I just talked to Mario. He didn't seem to talk that way. Uh, Good morning. We are going to continue our series of the life of Paul. Uh, If you've been us for any time at all, you know that we've put this into like three main categories, real creatively named like this. The life of Paul 1, the life of Paul 2, and the life of Paul 3. We are well into the life of Paul 3 to the tune of 39 sermons on the life of Paul. So hopefully we've learned some things along the way, and I hope that's the case again for today. Last we left Paul, he is being escorted out of Jerusalem because there is a plot to kill him by 40 or more people. They're going to ambush him. They're going to get him. This group hates Paul so much, their commitment to kill him is so fierce that they have vowed to never eat again until they accomplish the mission. I'm glad to report they probably starved (laughs) because they did not complete the mission. God's hand was on him, protecting him in this way, did not happen. So, Uh, We know instead that Paul was transported with like 470 military people taking him out of Jerusalem down to Caesarea. So, you know, you can do the math, 40 people versus 470. I guess we'll leave him alone. Uh, He seems safe. And that's exactly what happened. And now we're going to find him uh, going to court under the leadership of Judge Felix, the governor Um, we have seen the life of Paul, some things that are happening like more and more, like more and more persecutions, more and more attempted murders, more and more getting beat up, more and more being put in jail. And to this point, God has kept him alive, though often bruised and battered, which again, it's a good time to say that living the Christian life isn't always easy. Uh, We certainly struggle to comprehend and to understand these hard, challenging points of life, But at the end, it is worth it. We have seen that from Scripture. We have taught that. We have showed verses about pressing on, and Paul is doing exactly that. So we pick up the life of Paul in Acts 24, and the first part of the chapter is like a transcript of the courtroom scene. And so that's where we're going to start, that we are here. The prosecution is entering the room. Paul is there, and they are seeking nothing less than the death penalty. However, we already know something about this case uh, that they don't because uh, a few chapters earlier, God has already told Paul, hey, you're going to make it to Rome. I want you to get to Rome. And so, spoiler alert, he, he doesn't get the death penalty here. He's going to live, all right? But there are still some things in this court case that are worth us seeing and mentioning, uh, learning, applying, um, even, even from a knowledge standpoint. But it's then the last few verses of this chapter Um, where I think there are some very vital things for us to consider. So here we go. Let's start at looking at the details of Paul's trial. After five days, verse 1 says, Ananias the high priest came down with some elders and the lawyer named Tertullus. These men presented their case against Paul to the governor. When he was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him and said, Since we enjoy great peace because of you, and reforms are taking place for the benefit of this nation by your foresight. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with utmost gratitude. 
However, so that I will not burden you any further, I beg you in your graciousness to give us a brief hearing. Saying stuff like that is exactly why lawyers have a bad rap. If you're a lawyer, no offense, but that is just laying it on thick with flattery. Trying to get an upper hand on something where facts should be the only thing that matters. And here's the problem with what he's saying. It's not true. Most excellent Felix is not a real thing. Any peace or reform that this region is experiencing and has... It's because of intimidation and manipulation. Felix is a political bully. And here, I'm going to show that to you. Well, I'm going to tell you about it, and I hope you believe me. Luke doesn't, the author of this book, he doesn't say much about Felix and his character. But anytime you study, you should go a little further. Like, okay, what about this guy, Felix? So the historians of his day, guys like Tacticus and Josephus, both of them had plenty of things to say about Felix. And none of it was good. None of it was positive. Though... It starts like it could be. Felix was the first person in Roman history to rise up out of slavery and then to rule a province. He was the fourth governor, which sounds like it would make an admirable and inspiring book or movie. But instead of that happening, instead of like, oh, the success story of rising up out of hardship of slavery into a successful politician, instead of that, History says stuff like this about him. Tacticus says he exercised the power of a king with the spirit of a slave. He was brutal, small-minded, and corrupt. On one occasion, he promised safe passage through his region to 400 400 Egyptians and then double-crossed them, captured them, killed every one of them. He hired street thugs to intimidate and assassinate his closest supporters, like his best friends, anytime he thought that they were a threat to him. He hired a professional hitman to kill Jonathan the high priest because Jonathan sent word to Rome that he was not happy, Felix was not doing a good job in leading the area there. And there's even an account of Felix having 1,000 and more Jews massacred, taking their possessions, taking their property, and giving it to other Roman wealthy people. If you grew up in my generation, you could probably remember the cartoon character, Felix the Cat. This is Felix the Rat. He was generally hated and despised. And here we see the flattery of most excellent Felix. Well, the lawyer goes on to make his accusations of Paul here in verses 5 and 6. For we have found this man to be a plague, an agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple, so we apprehended him and wanted to judge him according to our law. Paul, you are a plague. That's accusation number one. You are a disease. You are COVID-19. You are inconvenient. You are a problem. You, of all the Jews that exist, you, Paul, you are the biggest troublemaker, the biggest rebel out there of them all. 
Paul, you're the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That's accusation number two. A ringleader, we kind of understand what that means. It's the leader, it's the head. It's the head of the snake that's causing all of this trouble. And sect, that's a, a word that refers to people that have a different religious view within a larger different view. I think it could also mean like denominations. There's all kinds of sects that are going on right there. And here, Tertullus is making the accusation that Paul is the ringleader of some weird, new, heretical movement that has originated out of Nazareth. Then the lawyer goes on to accuse Paul in verse 6 for attempting to desecrate the temple. That's the third accusation, that Paul is grossly disrespecting the temple, which would have been not a good thing to do, considered a holy place here for the Jews to worship. So these are the allegations against Paul. You're a plague, you're a ringleader of heresy, and you're a desecrator of the temple. Now, after making an accusation in the court of law, what do you think would be the normal thing to present? Evidence. Evidence. Proof. None of that happens. Tertullius offers none. I am pretty sure, like, I get this. I am pretty sure the best way to win a court case, whether prosecuting it or defending it, is to have evidence on your side. In my opinion, he closes his argument, Teratulus, he closes his argument with a pitiful, sorry, pathetic closing. You really wouldn't want to ask, like, how much am I paying this guy? What am I getting here? Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, by examining him yourself, you will be able to discern all these things that we are accusing him of. And then the Jews joined in the attack alleging that these things were so. In other words, most excellent Felix, Paul is guilty because I say he is guilty. Just ask him. And then all the others around him, Ananias, the high priest, and the other elders were like, yeah, yeah, that's true. He did all that stuff. I believe it. He did all that stuff. Just ask him. That kind of closing argument never works on law and order, ever. It doesn't, it won't work. And it doesn't work here. Look, reading verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, that's Paul, all right, he replied, because I know you have been a judge of this nation for many years, I am glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. Right away, you, you have to notice the difference. Paul is respectful in his words to Felix, definitely respecting his position as leader and authority, but all that flattery stuff, you don't see all of that. He, he acknowledges that he's in charge, he's got it a wealth of experience of making decisions, like seven years' worth as governor. Verse 11, Paul begins his defense, and he presents a rebuttal to each of these charges against him. You are able to determine that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They didn't find me disputing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd, either in the temple complex or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. Accusation number one was this. I'm accused of being a plague, a troublemaker who causes riots. His defense, I've been in town 12 days. There is not one report, there's not one eyewitness of any evidence that there's any trouble anywhere, in the streets, in the synagogue, nowhere. goes on in verse 13. Neither can they provide evidence to you of what they now bring against me. But I confess this to you. 
I worship my Father's God according to the way, which they call a sect, believing all things that were written in the law and in the prophets. And I have a hope in God, which these men, my accusers, they also accept, that there is going to be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. I always do my best to have a clear conscience towards God and men. So accusation number two was, I'm, being, I'm accused of being a ringleader of this sect from Nazareth. And his defense is, I do not have a confession of guilt, but I do have a confession of faith. I'm confessing to you. And what I'm confessing to you, my accusers believe almost the exact same thing. Let the record show that this sect that they call is the way, which is a Roman-approved practice of Judaism. That's a very important detail. It would be highly illegal to spread a religion that was not officially sanctioned by the Roman government. Judaism, however, was sanctioned. I mean, they didn't care about it, but it was at least sanctioned, and Felix would have known this. Paul is dismissing the idea that he is some ringleader rebel of some radical new movement, but rather he's explaining that he holds to the teachings of Judaism just like his accusers. As a follower of the way, Paul is pro-God, pro-law, pro-prophets, pro-resurrection, and pro-Jesus. Really, the only difference between Paul and his accusers is that he believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that they believed for all these years. And his accusers don't. Paul is making the case that he doesn't have criminal offenses. He has theological discrepancies. It's true today. Some people believe in God and some don't. A person's position regarding the existence or non-existence of God is not a criminal offense. Right? I think we would want everyone to believe that. But if they don't, it's not criminal. People today, they believe Jesus is God, and some don't. That's not criminal. That's theological discrepancies. Paul is making a, a, a very good defense of himself of saying, this is church stuff. This is not criminal stuff. Can you imagine the courts making ruling on all of our theological differences? I mean, they, they, they did it in Rome. Thank God that they like don't now. I, I don't know what the future holds. Imagine them determining how much water is needed in baptism. Boy, we can't get that along with that in our own denomination stuff. Now, good news, we have positions on all these. Imagine we're having Lord's Supper today. Should it be crackers or bread? Wine or juice? Mixture of both. All these things. Uh, it's very, very interesting of his defense that he goes through and saying just over and over again, these are theological differences, not criminal. Verse 17. After many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my nation. And while I was doing this, some Jews from Asia, which is Ephesus, found me ritually purified in the temple without a crowd and without any uproar. So accusation number three, I'm accused of desecrating the temple. His defense, nothing could be further from the truth. I brought alms to the needy. I brought this to the temple for people to see. I went through a purification system. I was bald, shaved. That's not disrespectful. Ask anyone around. They will tell you there was not a time of causing any trouble. 
And then Paul makes a great observation in verse 19. It's significant. He says this. It is they, referring to these Jews from Ephesus, who ought to be here before you to bring the charges if they have anything against me. So Paul is saying, like, judge, where are the people who are making these accusations? Shouldn't they be the ones here in the courtroom to, like, decide some things? And again, this is just pretty obvious to me, that if you're going to bring charges against someone, a good strategy would be to show up at the court date. And they don't. And so verses 20 and 21, Paul brings his closing conclusion to like this. Either let these men here state what wrongdoing they have found for me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, and the answer to that would be none, or about the one statement that I cried out while standing among them, today I am being judged before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. That statement is what he said, and oh, that would cause an uproar where he said it. And the reason he said it was not because it's criminal, but because people were split, right? The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees, they didn't. And so Pharisee, uh, Paul could get friends on the Pharisee side just by saying that. Oh, maybe he's not so bad after all. Whereas the Sadducees were like, no, this is not right. This guy's crazy. None of it criminal. Just theologically different. So, the verdict, verses 22 and 23. Since Felix was accurately informed about the way, he adjourned the hearing saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes to town, I will decide your case. He ordered that the centurion keep Paul under guard, though he could have some freedom, and that he should not prevent any of his friends from serving him. So what's the conclusion? Felix does what is known today, I think even, reserves judgment. Despite already having a letter, remember that? When Paul came to Caesarea, he came with a letter. And the commander, Lysias, said, hey, we found nothing wrong with him. We basically saved his life. He's a Roman. We're bringing him to you. Despite Felix already having that, despite Paul giving pretty clear evidence of like, hey, all these charges, they're not true. Nothing can be proved. Despite knowing that Christianity is legal, following of the way, despite there being no eyewitnesses, Felix holds off making the judgment. And I believe it's because there are some other factors going on that he was very um, concerned about. If he lets Paul walk freely, the Jews, the Sanhedrin, they might just go wild, riots, trouble. And it wasn't worth it to him to have to face all of that. So instead, he kind of dodges the situation, says, let's just put him in jail till later. And that's what he does. He orders them there. And his jailing, as we see here in the verse, um, I guess if there's a silver lining here for Paul, one thing would be is it wasn't the harsh part of jail. It was a, it was a home, more of a home arrest. He could have friends come and take care of them. He could have people in. He could get food. So it wasn't the worst situations. We have no record um, whether Lysias comes 
to give this report. I kind of think he doesn't, um, but it seems like more like a stall tactic that he was doing. And so there is like the transcript of his court case. And it kind of just leads in, though, to what really is captivatingly sad in the verses that we end with. Um, Paul is in a hardship, and he doesn't, he doesn't waste the opportunity. Like his passion for the kingdom of God is still going forward. And yet when he does, one of the saddest things we could ever see in the Bible is about to unfold for us. Look at it here in verse, starting in verse 24. After some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Christ Jesus. Now as he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became afraid and replied, leave now. But when I find time, I will call for you. At the same time, he was also hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. For this reason, he sent for him quite often and conversed with him. After two years had passed, Felix received a successor, Portius Festus, and he, and because he wished to do a favor for the Jews, Felix left Paul in prison. Okay, a couple of things here. First of all, let's talk about Drusilla, his wife, in verse 24. It talks about that she was Jewish, uh, but that's just one side of the family. Her other side of the family uh, is this. She is the daughter of King Herod Agrippa I. What a, what a marriage, right? If you don't know anything about the Herods, they are, with a capital M, mess. Very, very messy. That would mean her grandfather was the Herod, Herod the Great, who had all the Bethlehem two-year-olds and under killed. Grandpa. Her great-uncle would have been the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. That's the other side of her family. And then one other interesting note that historians uh, do not, they are not shy about pulling out at all, and it is this. She was elite, one-of-a-kind, stunning, beautiful. The historians make a big point of addressing that. Which, if Felix is walking around town and sees her, He's going to claim her as wife, or try to, and he does. Manipulation, trouble, intimidation. She's already married. She leaves that guy, becomes uh, the wife to Felix, which makes now Drusilla his third wife, and her Felix would be the second husband. Here we go. That's the family arrangements all going on. Okay, So they are calling for Paul. They want to hear about his faith in Jesus Christ. It certainly sounds like they are intrigued. They are curious about this. And so here we go. The conversation happens. Verse 25, Paul starts talking to them about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, which without a doubt, if the Holy Spirit is involved with this, it is going to strike a nerve of conviction. And it did. Righteousness was not his forte. He's violent. He's killing people. He's assassinating people. 
Self-control, not exactly his thing either. Anger, rage, adultery. And then to be told, Felix, there's a coming day where you are going to have to give account for that. I don't know where Drusilla was on all this. She's not mentioned, but we do know about Felix. He became afraid. And wouldn't it have been fantastic for verse 25 to say, after hearing these things, he became afraid and replied, I repent. I'm sorry. God, forgive me. Paul, what do I have to do to be saved? And he doesn't. To be that afraid, I believe, means he was under great conviction. He knew he was guilty. So close. But to be almost saved is to be entirely unsaved. To be almost Jesus, Lord and Savior of your life is to be totally not your Savior and Lord of your life. So tragic. When you see the rest of these verses unfold, it says stuff like, for two years, Felix continued to have conversations with Paul, but instead of finding conviction and afraid, we see that his motivations seem to have changed and he wants money from Paul. Most think that it means like bribe money. Hey, Paul, give me some money and I get you out of here. So he has exchanged the conviction of God, conversations of faith in Jesus Christ that certainly is going to include righteousness and self-control and coming judgment, and he's exchanged all that for greed, for the cares of this world. I will get back to you, is what he said, when I am ready. And the best we can tell from these verses he never gets back to him in this way. So instead of it being harder and harder to resist what Paul had to say, it almost looks as if it became easier and easier to reject it. And then we just see the end of, the, of this account that later his position is removed, he's out. Paul stays in prison. We'll pick that up next week. But what a sad situation that we have, we have no record that Felix ever got back around to talking to Paul in this way. And you stop and think, there are some comparisons that we can make with Felix's life. So there's Acts 24. Now, besides gaining some information about a court case that you might forget by Wednesday. I, I can admit that. Oh, Doug preached. I don't even remember what it was about. Well, you can look. Like, it's here in the history. We can see that. But is there something of such great value that we cannot afford to miss? That we can't forget? That it has to stick? Certainly, there are a lot of applications that we can make, like flattery. We can start all the way back at the beginning. 
wrong. Proverbs, the book of Proverbs says it's wrong. Certainly there's a whole bunch of things about truth will come out and be known. Certainly there's lessons about Paul here and his perseverance and sticking with it even though things are hard. But the one application that I want us to leave us with is this. And it has to do with eternity. If something is going to last forever, we should give it our undivided attention. It should be our top priority. And I don't think it is possible for people to doubt the existence of eternity. I know people may try to live like there's no eternity. People might try to convince themselves that there's no eternity. People might try to deny that there's an eternity. But what does the Bible say? God has put eternity, he's placed it in our hearts. Every single person knows that, which means that by design, by instinct, each one of us knows that this world is not all that there is, that there is more coming. And based on how it's laid out here and all throughout the Bible, and contrary to popular opinion, not everyone goes to heaven. And the application is this. Everyone has an upcoming court date. Everyone will stand in the presence of almighty, righteous, perfect God. And he will know that on our own, we don't measure up. And the saddest thing that can happen to a person is, is not to be prepared for their court date. Look at some comparisons of Felix's life and ours just real fast as we close. Felix was married to a Jew. And so from that angle, I just want to say, like, God's chosen people, the Jews, with the presentation of the gospel is so right there for this people. Felix was married to that kind of person. And that was not enough. It is not enough to belong to a Christian family. And, and so I, I, just, I want to just make a few comments, if I can, to, one, speak about the amazing blessing that it is to grow up in a Christian family. That is ginormous. But specifically to all teenagers and down, and to my own. Growing up in a Christian family does not make you a Christian. You have to own it for yourself. Despite all of the bad parenting that you see, you still have to own it for yourself. We can't miss that. Felix was married to like the chosen nation. Felix was also accurately informed of the way. That is not enough. Being prepared is not being accurately informed about Christianity. And if I could be so bold as to say it, like Mar Mario preached it earlier, like everyone that's here, we believe God put you here today. 
Attending church is not enough. Coming to a community group is not enough. To go to a Bible study is not enough. I mean, the list goes on. You can put a Joy FM sticker on your car. It is not enough. If you think about it, Felix probably had the very best Bible tutor one-on-one. It was not enough. Being prepared is not putting off, is not delaying of repenting of your sins and confessing Jesus to be Lord and boss of your life. It is foolish. It is stupid for a person to think that he or she will get around to preparing for eternity. When conviction comes, submit and repent. Someone has said, atheism has claimed its thousands, but procrastination its ten thousands. Felix made a tragic mistake. Do not be like Felix. The problem with procrastination is the longer it goes, the easier it is to keep letting it go. Hearing the word of God, the gospel, being convicted by it and letting it go gets easier and easier over time. And that is tragic. When the message of the gospel is presented to us. We are in the position of greatest privilege or greatest danger. Right? Greatest privilege is the gospel comes to us. It convicts us. We repent. We believe. We make Jesus Lord, Savior of our life. Best place, best privilege to ever be. Eternity with God. But conviction comes to us. The gospel comes to us. And we reject, we deny, we put it off till later. We put ourselves in the greatest danger known to humanity. What's your position when it comes to the gospel and to eternal life? Everyone has a coming court date. Be prepared for it, and let's help others be prepared for it as well. Let's pray. Father, your son Jesus, um, while here on earth, he proclaimed that I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked that group of people, do you believe this? That is the greatest question that we could ever be asked and answer. But I pray that each and every one of us can answer positively to this. 
that we have come at some point in our life under the conviction of the Holy Spirit with the gospel's message that we are sinners, we don't measure up, we need help. God, you are graciously good in giving us that help through Jesus, bearing our sins to the cross, being resurrected, and one day going to fix everything that is wrong. I pray that we would not be a people that puts off when you convict us. And and that can extend even further than um, even salvation. Like, there's times that you you convict us and you lead us and we procrastinate and following your will and what you want us to do Maybe because, well, I'll just get back to it later. And I would pray if that's the case, that you would, you would draw that to light. And if repentance is needed, then we repent, and then we press on, and we are obedient people. It certainly makes coming to the Lord's Supper a really special time for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.